Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that slept with your husband. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. Today we'll be discussing cheating and romance, a somewhat polarizing topic. I can find thoughtfully compiled lists on YouTube, Goodreads, and blogs of books featuring cheating. Then there are comments on TikTok videos, Reddit, and Goodreads where a person refuses to read a book with infidelity. For example, I found this gem on a blog post on All About Romance. Great author or not, giving a happily ever after to someone who has been unfaithful is cheating. Of course it can be done. After all, the author is in control, but it doesn't really change anything. It's still condoning wrong actions. Nicole Jordan reissued one of her books, removing an instance of infidelity, an impressive move, in my opinion. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite critique, uh, the presence of a wrong action means the author condones that action. I could read a thousand different comments about cheating or infidelity in romance. It's kind of a joke that people will excuse murder before cheating. The cheating discourse follows a couple different thoughts. One, readers can excuse cheating in historical romance if the setup is an arranged loveless marriage. Two, some people actually enjoy cheating as a plot for the drama and for the redemption that comes after doing a terrible thing. So there is, there is positive out there. Three, others hate cheating because they've been cheated on and don't want to see it in their fiction. Four, cheating is okay as long as it's the main couple cheating with each other. (laughs) And I've also seen the literal opposite. There's tons more. Uh, We'll get into it. If you've listened to us before, we love the drama, the character arcs, and characters doing terrible things. That's why we think cheating in romance works as a viable storyline, despite reviews to the contrary. Uh, today we have a special guest who we've referenced a few times on the show already, uh, Bailey. She's on TikTok and most social media under the name at Bailey Reads Books. And you can go to her website for insightful reviews on baileyreadsbooks.com. Yay! So yay, Bailey! <laughs> We're Thank so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I really like your guys' podcast. It's so great. <laughs> we've quoted you on here a few times. I know. Like, I felt so famous. <laughs> So many times I've saved one of your TikToks and like, oh, oh Bailey said the thing, oh, the good thing. I'm so glad thing. that the things that Bailey said on the internet are received positively. <laughs> I feel like Bailey brings a big, like, I've read other genres perspective to romance yes. level discourse, which is always helpful for me, someone who barely reads other genres. <laughs> so it's like, but, oh, Bailey has insight outside of just historical romance, which is always, I'm always um, happy to see. I am relatively new to reading it, and most of the my first historical romance recommendations came from Emma. Oh, yeah, that's false. I did steer then. you wrong with a Mary Bollock. Was Bollag it Mary Bollock? I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> I think Mary Bollock was actually the fault of a fantasy author. Okay, so it's okay. I will. I'll get you to read the right Mary Bollock book. I just Please did it do. with um, uh, Beth. Yes, <laughs> I know. I find I Mary Mary Bollock is good for me fifty percent of the time. So that's about uh, her her win rate. <laughs> Yeah, that seems about uh, about right. Okay, we're so glad to have you here, Bailey. And we have talked about cheating and infidelity before. And I know that you're interested in this topic as it pertains to romance. 
So before we kind of get into it, we're going to define infidelity a little bit. Like in every other discipline, actually just defining what infidelity is is difficult, and everyone has different parameters of what it covers. But I found this definition in the article, Infidelity and Its Associated Factors, a Systemic Review. Infidelity has been defined as a violation of a couple's assumed or stated contract regarding emotional and or sexual exclusivity. I feel like from what I've read, people divide women and men in how they view what's considered infidelity, but studies have found more similarity than differences between the gender's engagement in infidelity, especially when both sexual and emotional forms of infidelity are considered. Many studies look at demographic variables like age, gender, socioeconomic status, faith to measure, likelihood to engage in infidelity. Then you have intra-individual factors, for example. If someone has a more permissive sexual attitude or attachment styles like anxious or avoidant individuals, quote, at a couple system level, end quote, and this has been found consistently across all studies, but one of the biggest predictors of infidelity is relationship satisfaction. One final thing I wanted to note, because I think we'll bring this up later in the episode, because there's a disproportionate number of men who are cheating in stories, at least from like what we found, I want to mention that it's not such a disparity. Um, From an article that I'll link in the show notes if you wanted to check it out later, quote, the results of a 2007 meta-analysis of 50 studies showed a lifetime prevalence of infidelity in 34% of men and 24% of women. So yes, men are more likely to engage in cheating or infidelity, but it's not like what we're seeing in romance. (laughs) Where we could buy, find barely any books where, like, the heroine was the the cheater. Okay, so now that we've kind of established what, how did we define infidelity, we're going to bring it around to romance. So why do you think some readers really don't like cheating in romance? What has been your experience when you've brought it up on TikTok or other platforms? I think people don't like cheating in romance because, like, cheating feels bad in real life and they don't want to feel bad Uh, Mm -hmm. when they're reading a romance book. Um, I've talked about cheating a few times on TikTok, and I've received some pretty wild comments. Um, The most boring and easiest to dismiss are people essentially saying that I am delighted that real people get cheated on because I don't mind reading a romance novel where cheating is a central conflict. I think this is very silly. And every time I talk about the topic, I do give a, like, I'm not trying to make you personally read a cheating book. Disclaimer, that should be implicit. But um, isn't, apparently. <laughs> no. But after that critique, I get comments on opposite ends of the spectrum that, like, romance should be a fantasy. The first group think that romance should be realistic, and thus no one should stay with a partner who cheats. Um, this one is really easy to counter because so many people stay with their partner who cheats in real life. That's super common. The second group are people saying that romance should be happy and cheating is not happy. Multiple people outright saying that if there is cheating, the book just, like, categorically can't be a romance. I think it's a little bit bananas to think that your personal preference should dictate genre constraint. But I also don't think that anyone thinks that romance is supposed to only make you happy. I'm not, like, coming for the HEA, but I think that I've never felt happiness three quarters of the way through a romance novel. Um, I felt, you know angry or frustrated or sad probably where you cry and I want that to be the case I love it when an author makes me doubt that an HA is possible and then manages to convince me by the end 
even the fluffiest romances don't deal in happiness, and I think it's infantilizing and not grounded in reality to think otherwise. I like that romance is such a high-conflict genre, and I think cheating is a really good conflict. Bailey, that was great. Good job. I just wanted to look at <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I quickly, and then I had to like... Yeah, as far as um, like reader response or like audience response to stuff that I've put out about cheating, I've only made one video about cheating because I don't really think of cheating as like a unifying thing for romance. Like I wouldn't class the books that we're going to talk about today as books that are alike each other in any way, even though they share um, a plot point. But the book video that I made about cheating was really about other women and how, uh, or other women characters and how misogynistic the way that people talk about them are, including readers and authors. There are a few books where the other women characters, even though I don't really mind cheating as a plot, the other woman is the character who gets all this like in-universe anguish. She gets the comeuppance. Um, and readers seem to really hate them, even as they're saying, oh, what I hate is cheating. And it's like, well, the other woman is not the character who's cheating. Um, the rake gets forgiven because that's part of getting to the happily ever after. And the other woman is the character who gets the comeuppance. Um, and a sort of uh, not quite the other woman, um, because they're often not the character between the main couple, but late husband's mistresses. This is a common plot that I see where a, a widow or... Um, well, we'll discover that her late husband had a mistress and that character gets similar treatment as the other woman in cheating plots. But yeah, I don't really connect all these cheating books together because there's so many different things you can do with it um, that I don't, I don't think of this as a trope in and of itself as much as it has like lots of different little common threads. Like I would connect other women and late husband mistress more acutely together than I would all the cheating books. Yeah, I think what you're talking about where the other woman gets a comeuppance is interesting because it does feel gendered. I think it also plays out in a number of books that feature cheating where no daddy here, but a cursory glance. It's primarily the heroes who are cheating. Even with queer books, I could only find a list for men and no like sapphic book lists that feature cheating. But if we have the hero cheating that we know they work their way to forgiveness and you can at least see where they're coming from, kind of like what you're saying, Emma, it's not... <laughs> I never really talked about cheating on, like, my TikTok account because the reviews and comments on, like, Goodreads are so unhinged. So I just kind of <laughs> stay away from the the conversation until now, I guess. Yeah, people no, we're know how I feel. It has made me very angry the way people talk about it, so. People will come tell you. Yeah, they will, they will, they will tell you if you say – if you – suggest something that is like not to their personal taste it's like an attack on the yeah. <laughs> right. um, which i i don't think i've ever specifically addressed cheating uh but i have talked about several of the books uh in, that we're going to talk about in this episode on tiktok um and one time i spoke about ravishing the heiress which we'll get to later and spoiler alert for that section but we don't actually think it's a cheating book but i did get a comment on that video that said I read this because of your video, and when I called my mom to tell her about it, I was vibrating with anger, <laughs> which is the funniest thing anyone has ever said to me on TikTok, and I also think I might need to apologize to her mom. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like with bodice rippers that include intimate partner violence, where detractors are like, this isn't romantic, this isn't something that we should aspire to. Uh, that's how some, I feel like some romance readers react to cheating and romance. Both of them are understandable when it comes to triggers, like we have limits and we have boundaries and things that we just don't want to be reading in a book. 
But for cheating specifically, there's a lot of people who have a hard and fast rule that this is unforgivable, and this is not something that should be depicted in romance. And this is something that Bailey mentioned earlier, and is something that I've also heard Beth say before, and I think about it often, that everything that is unforgivable to you, someone has been forgiven for. I want us to kind of move away from the idea that self-insertion is the goal of romance, and that's how I think we should be discussing romance in general. What is the story? How does this work? How does it make you feel? Not, did something happen to the heroine that I wouldn't personally allow in my relationships? So there's this TikTok account that does trope jail. And of course, one of the first tropes to be jailed was cheating. But what was interesting to me is that the book talker described cheating in a way where I've never read it in a romance. Like an unrepentant man just bowling over a woman. You don't have to read books with cheating if you don't want to, obviously, but I sometimes wonder if the folks that make big generalizations about cheating, specifically in romance, have read them. Because it's something that needs to be worked through. If the HEA is the goal, you need to get from this big emotional upheaval to a place where all parties are comfortable. How does the author get us there? It can be a really interesting journey. I'm glad we're coming for trope jail. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I started to, like, I hate it so much. I'm started yeah. like getting digs in her all the time. Oh, <laughs> no, you should. Uh, that account makes me very frustrated and just is like the worst criticism of all time. Anyway. And it's spreading on TikTok. It's like I more and more trope jail. I can't. The whiteboard. I haven't seen like, the original person, but I've seen like their, their echoes. I feel like there's two big accounts. There's like that one. one There's book. Yeah. (laughs) There's like the one, the one girl where she like, she's, she talks really fast and it sounds like it's the cadence of a joke, but it's not actually that funny. And she just like lists things off that are like conflicts in book books. Okay. And then there's that other person. It's just like anything bad, like a horror, like they'll pull out and be like jail, like the jail for the screen screen record. Yeah. Yeah. That's book jail. I haven't yeah. seen that person at all, but I've oh. I've heard tell. That's yeah, like both of those a, are that's bad. A good, um, like a, a good indication of your for you page, Bailey. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. do try to um, not interested my way into an okay for you page. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best way to go. Um, so we should define what cheating is in romance. We'll talk a little bit later on about a few books where people classify them as cheating books, but we would wouldn't classify them that way. And kind of like our miscommunication discussion, could we make a difference between cheating and cheating trope? Is there a cheating trope? What perhaps the trope part would be something like walking in on your partner right as they're cheating on you? Yeah, so I had a few ideas about this because I feel like it's important to define cheating as it functions in the book rather than cheating in real life because I feel like you define cheating in your own life, right? Like whatever relationship you're in, that definition of cheating is cheating. So we don't want to try and make a definition that applies to everyone in the world. But a definition that I'd seen when I started reading romance was um, someone called anytime any character has on page sex with another character, the other than the main relationship, they called that a cheating book. And this was one of my first indications. It's like, I think the, the way that maybe the way that romance talks about cheating is not how I think about cheating in books. Um, and I saw it as a reaction to Notorious Pleasures by Elizabeth Hoyt which is not a book that we're going to talk about today, but it's interesting because the the reviewer was mad at the hero for sleeping with another woman. The book opens with the heroine coming upon the hero sleeping with another woman at a party. But actually in that book, the heroine is the one who's cheating on her fiance with the hero. Like she is, she is engaged yeah. and she is engaging with a, a, a romance with his, the, her fiance's brother. So she's the one who's cheating, but the, there was this like 
incredible vitriol in this review against having to witness a scene where the hero was sleeping with another woman. And I thought that was indicative of how a lot of people respond to cheating in romance. That the, the problem is not necessarily the cheating, it's the sex on page, that that's at least one definition for people. And I think if we're going to talk about a trope, there has to be at least two, and I'm not even sure if I'm really attached to this definition, but cheating together and cheating on each other, I think has to be two different things because the structure of those plots are going to be so different. Um, I think it's a great example of how I see tropes working. They have to have a rhythm or beats. These are two tropes that involve the same act by a human that play off each other differently in structure and narrative demands. Main characters cheating together has an element of forbiddenness and taboo, going against the grain, society, expectations. There has to be a reason that we're rooting for this couple, even though they're not uh, engaged or married to each other. And then a main character cheating on another main character, the question is more internal rather than about society. How do we overcome ourselves and earn forgiveness? And those are just so removed from each other. I think there has to be at least two tropes, but I, I think there's probably even more granularity there. But I don't think you can lump all cheating books together under one umbrella of cheating. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting a little bit tired of seeing like all actions through the lens of a trope. Not that these aren't or can't be tropes, because I think Emma did a really good job of kind of laying out how you can kind of like categorize them in a different way. But like what Emma said in our miscommunication episode, like tropes are in conversation with each other. So sometimes these feel like a wink and an Easter egg, like alone with you in a library where the heroine goes to read at midnight and then the hero was there. Uh, and then sometimes they're like a big story arc, like enemies to lovers. But when you try to take something as messy and fraught and frankly reviled as cheating, it automatically leans towards becoming a pejorative when you add trope to it. Uh, my skin starts to itch the way people say that they found cheating trope and miscommunication trope in a book as though they're an unexpected and unwelcome ingredient in a salad they ordered. Uh, sometimes being upset is the point. Like, I've never read a book with cheating where the cheating didn't get me worked up. But here's the thing. Romance can run the gamut of emotions. And sometimes you get a greater payoff when you have bigger stakes. I, yeah. yeah, that's why I didn't add anything. So like, <laughs> you both said exactly what we need to say. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah. Well, I think I think too. I Bailey, I know for your uh, cheating TikTok that you made that one time, like you were kind of like cheating trope, and you rolled your eyes. Not everything has to be a trope, and I'm like, that's kind of like how I kind of feel about it. Like, yeah, I do get like a little bit annoyed at the internet for the way that we use the word trope. Because I don't think it's useful if 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 it's used in every context, then you don't need to say the word because it's implicit. And I just think that we're we're adding an extra word where we don't necessarily need to say it. And I totally agree with your assertion that like people say it when they mean thing I don't like and not when they mean thing that happens in book. Right. It's not miscommunication <laughs> trope if I liked the book. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. Okay, so, so now that we've books. yeah, now that we've defined <laughs> a bunch of things, we're going to talk about books that have cheating in them, but different kinds of cheating, like we've been talking about, just because they have this plot point, they are enacted in many, many different ways. Not quite a husband follows Bryony and Leo. We briefly see their marriage in its final days before their eventual annulment and then jump to Bryony working as a doctor in India and Leo arriving to return her to England because her father is in ill health. The pair have to journey through India during an uprising against British colonial rule 
and in the process have to actually face each other and themselves on their trip back to England. This book includes a single instance of infidelity after the pair are engaged, but before they are married. Leo sleeps with an old flame, and Bryony knows but never confronts him before or during their marriage about it. This action and the imbalance of information that it causes is at the heart of their marriage crumbling. Bryony imagines that she's being played for a fool, that he either has a steady mistress or that he is continuously engaging in casual sexual encounters with multiple women. She never wishes to confront him because she's deeply ashamed and embarrassed and she's angry. She cannot trust him any longer and she absolutely is unable to even pretend to feel positively towards him during the time they are married. Leo is deeply confused. He doesn't understand why his wife seems to hate him and he ends up agreeing to the annulment. I love this book. I love this book so much. <laughs> um, well, I think there are criticisms for it, that, but I don't know if we'll get into them in this episode. But um, something that like really stuck with me about, like, I remember before I even read this book, before I'd even read Sherry Thomas, I remember seeing a lot of reviews of this book and the way that they talked about Leo was so different than my experience reading Leo. Like they made him out to be like the worst person, the most like least sympathetic character and so I was kind of like ready for like a type of bodice ripper villain, like someone who's just like uh, is evil and unapologetic about it, who is a misogynist. And that's not Leo at all. Like Leo, I think, is very relatable in a lot of ways. And so I'm kind of like, it, it's so interesting to me that like cheating is such uh, cheating, the thing that he does do in the book. And it is something that he both he and Bryony have to work through together. Um, but kind of like part of that that I don't think people talk about when they talk about the cheating in the book is that like a lot of uh, Bryony does some really cruel things to Leo too, like her refusal to um, to talk about it and her refusal also to kind of like let things go. Like there's a part towards the end where he's uh, they're kind of like thinking about reconciliation and he's like, I cannot I cannot get back to with Bryony. Because, like, what if I make her angry again? Like, eventually it'll happen. Like, how do... And I don't know if she's going to continue to stonewall me or if we're ever going to get to this point where, like, you can harm Bryony and Bryony can kind of contextualize it and kind of find a way to work through it or if every grievance against Bryony is just immediately getting the cut. Yeah, I like the the part when Bryony finally tells him, like, hey... I I know that you cheated on me and I actually felt so deeply empathetic to Leo like that description where he's just like he's like the, his whole he's just like oh my gosh and like the sound like was so loud and uh, yeah I and I think another thing that Thomas does really well with how she sets up this dynamic is Bryony assumes the worst like I think it's kind of human to assume that greater malice than that person actually felt like Leo to me kind of strikes me as someone who really wanted to be in this relationship got into this relationship kind of before he was ready made an impulsive decision and I don't fault him for not telling her <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you if uh you guys feel the same I think he should have told her but I'm not like surprised like I can follow his logic on he's like how would anyone ever know like this and the person (laughs) he was with she he went to her a few months after because he's like did something did you tell my wife (laughs) did you tell my wife like so yeah 
yeah, my whole point. I'm just I'm very empathetic to Leo, and he's kind of younger. He's younger than her. He's, he's like, like 24. 24. Yeah. He's younger than her, and she proposed to him, and he yes. wasn't intending on getting married for a couple of years. Yes. Yeah, it's a very empathetic situation in which he he cheats on her, and he immediately regrets it. Um, I think of some of the reviews I read were like he it, they fault him less for the cheating and more for not telling her on his own volition. Like it's not until she's like, I know you cheated on me. Mm-hmm. Um, that he reveals but I think the setup of their relationship it is so clear like it's like kind of like the classic question of like do you tell someone if you've done something wrong if you did it one time you immediately regret it and you're like are you just going to harm them again and there are other problems in their relationship of like Mm -hmm. lack of communication and it's like it's very it's very easy to understand that Leo sees their other problems it's like if I told her I would just be adding to this injury to her it's like she's already so injured by like my presence that he doesn't even connect to the cheating, that it's he thinks he's doing her a service by not telling her about the cheating. And I think he kind of, he kind of, if she didn't know, he would be. like. Um, and she just has this, um, she assumes bad faith because when she proposes, she doesn't understand that Leo has any affection for her. She basically, it's not just bad faith for him, but bad faith for her own actions. She is, she proposes and thinks like, I sort of trapped him with my dowry and not realizing that he is independently wealthy. So then she gets even more confused of like why did he even marry me so she she doesn't have any concept that he would be developing feelings for her um on his own which like leads them to get married a little earlier than that he would have wanted um which leads to him cheating because he, he sort of has cold feet because he's like he's like 24 and he's also he's been in love with her his entire life so that's yeah. also this element where he's like he can't he can't deny her he can't say no i don't want to marry you because it's like of course he wants to marry her maybe just not like right after he comes back from university. <laughs> These two people strike me as they really feel strongly for each other, kind of jump ahead in the relationship before they've built the scaffolding to like support the relationship they want. Like they haven't done the hard work of like, okay, how do we actually communicate before they're like, okay, now we're married actually. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it feels like to me. And then also to your point, Emma, I feel like Leo just feels, I feel like shame is such a powerful motivator and I don't think we talk about it enough. Like, would it, you would feel so much shame. You did something so bad. Like, how do you even bring that up, too? Like, I'm not trying to... We're, I don't think any of us are trying to, like, excuse Leo. I just... I oh, think no. we could see where he's coming from, yeah. <laughs> for sure. And I think the scene where he... Where they have to talk about it is done really well. And he yeah. clearly feels shamed. And he... Fe- like, independent of the fact that she's bringing it up. Like, it's clear that he felt shame before she was... Like, you should be ashamed. Um... I just, I don't know. I like that scene. I thought it was, like, really, really well written. It was one of my favorite ones from the book. Okay, uh, we're going to move on because I feel like we could talk a lot about Not Quite a Husband. <laughs> this one, the hero grovels for the whole book to prove he's trustworthy despite his past where he's cheated on his wife. And the heroine's husband has cheated on her. So you should definitely be reading Scandal by Carolyn Jewell. Scandal deals with the repercussions of previous infidelity rather than on-page infidelity between the couple. Sophie eloped with Tommy when she was 17. She eventually realizes Tommy married her for her fortune and doesn't return her love. He spends all her money and cheats on her. Sophie remains faithful to Tommy and still loves him. Tommy's fellow libertine, the Earl of Benalt, cheats on his wife as well. He often accompanies Tommy in some rakish behavior. Benalt propositions Sophie when he first meets her, and she turns him down, and this kind of leads to a friendship instead. 
Tommy dies and Sophie reconnects with her brother John. On the first page of the book, Benalt accompanies John to visit Sophie. He proposes to her and Sophie refuses him because she doesn't trust him. Benalt is a widower now, by the way. She's got a good reason not to trust him since Benalt cheated on his wife through their entire marriage. The book jumps between the present day, 1815, and three years prior. A present-day conversation will often lead to a relevant past scene, which shows us how the relationship got to its current dynamic. Chelsea's pitched Scandal as a book-long grovel. I think that's pretty accurate, and an interesting lens to view the repercussions of infidelity and how that affects future relationships, even if you didn't cheat on the person you're trying to have a relationship with. Okay, <laughs> so a few things. First, Sophie really loves Tommy, which I really like. And one pivotal moment in the relationship is right before he dies, he says he's going to change. So he stays home, he's paying attention to her, and she tells Benalt he made her fall in love with him all over again. Then she spies him sleeping with someone else and they have a big fight over it. He leaves that evening and that's when he gets in an accident. I think that second falling in love piles on the mistrust and devastation and you absolutely see why she expects Benalt won't behave any differently from Tommy. And then one other thing that I think really influences Sophie's reticence, there's actually a part in the book where Benalt poses a hypothetical to her, and the hypothetical is, if they were married, and his words, knowing what I am, would she stay faithful to him? She says she would only marry someone she loves, and if they married, it would be for love, so yes, she would be faithful. Benalt then mentions he has a daughter and he's surprised at how much he loves her, that he would die for her, and if her future husband made her unhappy, he would thrash him. Benalt's view of the world is interesting where he recognizes the inequality that some men demand fidelity from their wives while hiding mistresses, and then chalks this up to men being inherently deceitful. Sophie says some men are faithful, and he responds, not I. I want to read that book. <laughs> it's really book. good. It's so good. <laughs> and something like, and something that like, I'm what makes this book like so fun to talk about and like a cheating episode is because like I think you get a lot of historicals where like the heroine is being cheated on by her husband until there's like an inconvenient wife dies in childbirth an inconvenient husband dies on horseback like that's usually mm -hmm. what happens when there's like a bad husband um, in any case uh, Benalt is a stand-in for Tommy for Sophie because um, Tommy idolized Benalt so Tommy married Sophie because he wanted he wanted he he wanted an heiress. He wanted to get rich, and so he like made Sophie feel like she was special and worthwhile. And then after they got married, uh, he they he the wool was pulled over her eyes, or whatever the saying that applies goes. <laughs> yeah. Like she she realized that that he's not who she thought he was, and he actually doesn't really like her. But and Tommy wants to be like this rich aristocrat with wealth. So he hangs out with Benalt, who's a much worse man than Tommy, and mm -hmm. starts like emulating his behavior. So Benalt falling in love with Sophie. Sophie's like, why would I be with you? Why could I trust you? You are worse than the man that I married. And so the whole book is because he's kind of reached the point like in the dual timeline, like the that when we're in present day, he's already kind of reached the point where he's like, I fucked up. Like, I, I, I want to be different. Like, I love Sophie. I will do anything for Sophie. And Sophie is just kind of like, she sees Benalt from the past as Benalt from the past. And so kind of the whole book is like piecing together what happened, like little bits and pieces, like as Beth said, like the relevant scene and the, from the past and the current day. And it also is kind of like getting 
Benalt trying to prove to Sophie that he loves her and that he isn't like Tommy because as you mentioned Beth like he Tommy apologized to her too yeah Tommy said that he would change too yeah he didn't I know that's got to mess with you so much like Sophie like as Benal is trying to win Sophie over being like I felt like this before someone else has talked to me like this before like it's got to be it's got to mess with your head so much so you completely understand Sophie's point of view so yeah, everyone should read uh, Scandal. I will. <laughs> and something that like reminds me of, uh, so we just talked about Not Quite a Husband, is like Sophie and Bryony kind of have that thing in common where like they've been deeply, deeply hurt. But like at certain point, like you need to kind of like, if you want a relationship, if you want to be happy, you can't just like lock yourself away and not like, and, and not interact with the world like you can't you're just hurting yourself even more and because like people will hurt you people will make mistakes uh you have to kind of you don't have to forgive everybody but you do have to live a life and and both of them have this very like they have very similar reactions to being cheated on where they just kind of like shut down completely and so there while it is a book-long grovel and it is a lot about Benalt's like apologizing and making up to Sophie there's a lot of work that Sophie has to do too and she's kind of like initially reticent about it because she's in the right she's the injured party mm-hmm. I was just I, was, I wonder I, I've not read this book but I wonder if there's something about like dual timelines and cheating because I think four at least of the books that we're talking about are dual timeline because both Sherry Thomas's are Day of the Duchess is, and this one is, mm-hmm. where something about that, like, seeing the build-up to cheating and then seeing the grovel, like, there's, I think, something about it, like, le- that lends itself to making it more dramatic. I do think dual timelines tend to be, like, heightened drama. So something about that structure of, and also being in, I think it works well with, like, being in someone's head twice of, like, knowledge bases, thinking about, like, what does someone know of, like, how, how much do they know about their partner cheating on them? And, like, maybe the reader knows, but they're reading a scene where the character hasn't had the reveal yet. Like, that happens in Not Quite a Husband, where we're watching Bryony about to find out about Leo. But I just I just noticed that, that so many of the ones that we're talking about are dual timeline, which is one of my favorite structures. I love a dual timeline. It's very good. Okay, we're going to jump to a fake engagement. And it's If You Deceive by <laughs> Chrisley Cole. Charles. <laughs> okay, um talking about this book this book is like so funny to me because it's a book that I'm like I don't know how to articulate why I like this book like and so I'm just maybe I'm trying to work through like I do really like this book I reread it a lot but I gave it like three stars but I'm like the way I'm talking about it and the way that I will continue to talk about it it's gonna sound like I really like it because I'm lying to myself um so this is If You Deceive by Cressley Cole um and this is such an interesting book, uh, and I reread it often, as I mentioned. Uh, it's not really like Lord of Scoundrels by Loretta Chase, so I don't want to disappoint anyone on that front, but this is the only Beauty and the Beast historical where the characters really echo Jessica Trent and Dane from that book. Ethan McCarrick is a surly Scottish aristocrat who wants to get revenge on Madeline Van Rowan, whose family essentially mutilated him a decade prior. He already got revenge on her parents unbeknownst to her, so when he meets her and becomes kind of obsessed with her, he's not really sure what to do. Like, he wants her in his life, but he doesn't want to marry her. He wants to further his revenge, but he also feels guilty for the way that Madeline has suffered because of the retribution he's already enacted on her parents that has trickled down to her when she was still a child. So Madeline at this point is poor, young, and powerless compared to an aristocrat. 
but she has that innate confidence of a woman who's extremely clever and outrageously attractive. So it always feels like she has the upper hand over Ethan. Uh, she won't agree to be with him unless he marries her because she wants that security and is worried that he'll pull one over on her. He's still unsure about his intentions and doesn't think he can love Madeline, but he will do anything to keep her in his life except marry her. So he lies to her and says that he will once they get to one of his estates, hoping that he'll be able to sleep with her if he puts off marriage long enough. When they get there, he keeps getting distracted by work and snapping at her and acting quite belligerent. Madeline sees the writing on the wall and says, I'm going to leave you because you are clearly not going to marry me. So Ethan throws a fit and to spite her and prove that he doesn't need her, he immediately goes to a brothel. He brings two women up to a room, they undress him and begin to kiss his body, and then he has a change of heart. He runs back to Madeline with a marriage license in tow, says, I will do right by you, let's get married right now, and Madeline happily agrees. Just as they're engaging in makeup sex, she finds two lipstick prints above his navel and then is furious and kicks him out. So Madeline and Ethan actually have penetrative intercourse at the beginning of the book, so it feels like her refusal to sleep with him is more in line with her refusal to, to be a mistress or to let him have what he wants without her getting something in return rather than to protect like a dubious notion of virtue. So they do engage in intercourse throughout the book while they're in the bargaining stage, but because it's not penetrative, it doesn't count, like kind of according to the characters. This is also kind of where I think about the cheating too, because Ethan says that he didn't go through with it at the brothel, like they stopped at body kisses, and because of that, it doesn't count. And I think some readers would agree with this assessment, but I wouldn't. I also think that Ethan and Madeline both recognize it as a betrayal. So even if it doesn't count, does that really make a difference in how the characters feel? Like if you were going to split hairs here, I think you could say that Madeline was leaving Ethan. So he wasn't really cheating at that point because they were planning a split. But again, I would counter that with this feels like a betrayal and it's kind of handled as such. This is like the Regency we were on a break. (laughs) (laughs) We were on a break. That's very apt. Okay, so the way that she reacts when she finds that the kisses, and it's like he has asked her, to, okay, I'm for real now, let's get married, but he doesn't disclose like where he was before. That's kind of what it feels like a little bit, like I agree with you, Chelsea, like I, it feels a little yeah. murky to me. <laughs> yeah, like I can see why he didn't disclose that because he's like, hey, I mean it, I'm going to get married to you. Don't ask where <laughs> yeah. I just was. That's not relevant. Like, yeah. like, um, and what, what I think is really kind of like, and I don't think this, I don't think people really get that mad about the cheating or if they're the discussion about cheating around this book. And I think kind of like, I, I think I keep coming back to the Lord of Scoundrels, like Jessica Trent thing, because like Madeline is like such a force of nature that like it, she doesn't ever feel like it's like even she doesn't feel like an aggrieved party as much like even when she is like right rightfully angry at something uh because like she's her brain is already always moving to like the next thing she's like okay this happened to me regroup gotta move over and i think like some of that comes from trauma and like from what she had to do like as part of his revenge so like his revenge against her parents basically like impoverished her entire family and like kind of caused her father to die and then she had to like live in the uh a really sketchy part of paris uh and grow up there and kind of try to like scrounge on her own 
so she's kind of been like trying to like work her way up to a place of stability, like where she can just like live comfortably. And that's the most important thing to her over literally everything else. Like there is no part in this romance at all where Ethan is more important than Madeline being safe. I feel like this, like this cheating book or like she's calling this cheating trope, like misses that, like the betrayal seems to be, it's like right proposal, wrong reasons. It's like that actually happens a lot in historical romance where someone is like the hero will get to the point. It's like, oh, I do want to marry the heroine. And the conflict comes from either says the proposal wrong or she, she makes, she realizes that the proposal is coming from a place of duty or like sort of misaligned reasons like this, like that. That seems to be the betrayal. Like you didn't want to marry me until you went to a brothel and then realized that you would rather have sex with me than anyone else. Like that's that's a betrayal, but not necessarily. It, it's it, it is cheating or it's not cheating, but like that doesn't matter as much as like what's like happening there is that she's refusing him because he's proposing for reasons that are not coalesced in a way that is satisfactory to her. Okay, we're moving on to the next book. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I'm just like looking at how many books we have. Uh, So this is an interesting one. Lady Gallant by Suzanne Robinson. The hero sets up a scene with another woman so he can get caught by the heroine. Yes, and this one has similar reader reactions to it as Presley Cole, where people say, this is definitely cheating, this is the worst cheating I've ever read, or this is definitely not cheating. I'm more of the mind that this is cheating, um, or maybe the Presley Cole one is on whether they're in a committed relationship or not. We discussed Lady Gallant in our miscommunication episode, so I won't go into as full a plot recap as Chelsea did there, but it is a Tudor England romance between Nora, a mousy, quiet woman, and Christian de Rivers, a handsome, charming rake in Queen Mary's court. Both Nora and Christian are spies for Princess Elizabeth, though neither knows this about the other one. Christian is enamored with Nora early. He first thinks of seducing her, and then her earnest and honorable responses to him make him fall in love. She's really confused at his attention, sort of in a why-me way, um, because she's never gotten the sort of positive attention from men of the court before. Their romance is incredibly sweet. Like, at one point, she brings him puppies, and he's just unmoored by this gesture. Like, it's just super saccharine for the first third of the book. But after he proposes, Christian discovers a cipher left by Nora in a garden. He first believes the cipher to be dangerous, but innocent. But then the words in the cipher are translated and make it clear that Nora is a spy, though Christian assumes for Mary rather than for Elizabeth. Nora is a lady for the queen, so it's a fair assumption to make that she's sort of uh, aligning herself with institutional power that she already works for. Christian goes through with the marriage, but after the wedding night, he reveals his assumptions about her, that she is a spy and that she was trying to kill his father. He does not reveal that, she is, that he's assuming that she's a spying for Mary. Nora, in her loyalty to Elizabeth, won't reveal to Christian the nature of her work or who's in charge of her spy work. He lies and says he never loved her in one of the cruelest speeches I've ever read, listing all the things that he does love her about her as false. But the cruelty does not stop there. Christian invites a coterie of courtesans to their house and makes Nora play hostess as he flirts with them. He kisses one, Mag, in front of their guest. He has a previous relationship with Mag. Mag takes his interest in earnest and even attempts to steal away with him. But Christian delays their meeting, making it clear that his interest is less in Mag and than in being seen with Mag by Nora. After dinner, while Nora is sleeping in her room, she hears noise in Christian's adjoining bedroom. She opens the door to find Christian in bed with Mag, not quite having sex, and Christian cruelly teases, perhaps my wife would like to join us. 
He attempts to use the scene to bully Nora into revealing her spymaster, offering to abandon Mag if only Nora would tell him. Nora again refuses, and her broken steeliness is finally what breaks Christian. When Mag questions him when he returns to bed, he says, I tried to put her in hell and put myself there too. Other than the spy plot, the rest of the book is Christian really atoning to Nora, both grandly by making her life easier in her new home, and really specifically tailoring his redemption to what Nora needs to hear in response to his cruel words and actions. At least a few readers don't class Christian's betrayal as cheating. To me, it is clearly cheating. Um, they're in bed together, Mag is unclothed, he's married to Nora. But the cruelty reminds me somewhat of how we talked about Stormfire, um, of which we did a previous episode on. Christian at first justifies his cruelty as politics in a vacuum. He's attempting to injure a spy who is actively putting people he loves in great danger and working for Queen Mary, who's brutalizing Protestants as she's losing touch with reality in the book. I think it is important that Christian starts to break down that vacuum before he ever discovers that Nora is actually working for Elizabeth. He realizes a lifetime of holding that hatred would de destroy both of them. So for me, it is definitely cheating and one of the worst bad intents in the context of cheating. But I, what I love is that the motivation for change comes before everything gets solved in Christian's head. I think it's super interesting. I still haven't read this book, but I think it's really interesting that some people don't think that is cheating. But I've read a book where a man kisses a woman on the cheek like, hello, and people were like, he cheated on her. <laughs> so I just... <laughs> I just think, I think it's on the cheek. It might be on the lips, but it's like, hello. It's not, yeah. And I just, you know, I think a naked lady in your bed, if you're like there too, is right. more scandalous. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind of like, what is ambiguous about that? I just don't like, I guess, I guess kind of like what you said, uh, Emma, about like, because I guess that's kind of like what I think like penetrative sex, like if, for, if you deceive, like it's not cheating if they didn't have like penetrative sexual intercourse. I sound like a nerd saying it like that. <laughs> but like, but I'm like trying, in this like, episode, we have to yeah. define because people yeah. are like splitting hairs. So yeah, I'm like, but I don't want to like, I don't want to say anything that feels like weirdly gendered or like, you know what I mean? So I'm just right, like right. saying like, I'm like, uh, I'm where I'm literally imagine me pushing up my glasses as I say that because that's what <laughs> I'm doing right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't even know what I was talking about. I just got distracted. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, uh, no. I, I think this is such an interesting book. We've talked about it before. I haven't read it either. But I like what you said, Emma, that where a Christian, he starts working on uh, repairing things with Nora before he like fully learns. I guess that he assumes that she's a spy for Elizabeth. He recognizes like what his actions were and how wrong they were. And I think that's a probably my more favorite character arc where it's like they feel the shame on their own it wasn't like instigated by something else right after he finds out she's a spy for elizabeth it's like oh my god like i, I can't <laughs> believe the level to which i fucked up like yes but the, um yeah he i guess it's, it's not necessarily that he forgives her pre that but it's like this moment with mag he's like i my my, my plan has to change like i cannot yes. keep so he starts investigating more he starts asking questions and sort of also letting nora like he doesn't bug her as much because um, he's like, this is an untenable situation for us to live in this household together and for me to keep nagging at her because mm -hmm. I'm going to like kill myself because I'm I, I'm so distraught by this. He, he sort of realizes suddenly that the political is personal when you're married to a spy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you're all he's also a spy. He doesn't he, he's also yeah. doing his own spying. It's so messy. But yeah, Christian, um, he, he 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 starts his he jump starts his own redemption um, because of feelings that he has. 
Oh, and what is so fun about this one, too, is that, like, okay, so he's in his new mode where he's like, okay, I'm going to make it up to her. I have been wrong, obviously. And so, like, Christian is, like, uh, he's, like, so charming. And this book is really funny. It doesn't sound like it from this description, but this book is hilarious. Uh, And Christian is hilarious. And so he's kind of, like, in his mind, he's like, okay, well, I apologize. I'm Christian. I'm going to apologize. It'll get right. And Nora is, like, a mouse of a woman, you know? And, like, her nickname is literally Mouse. And so... So it's not like me being like, she's a mouse, but like everyone's like, she's a mouse. That's her nickname. Uh, And so she's kind of like very timid. And that's what makes it so sweet. And also what makes the cheating so devastating is just because she's like a very fragile person. But like Nora goes like full waiting to exhale, like in that last part where Christian is like expecting to come back and being like, oh, I just, you know, just rub her shoulders a little bit and, you know, whatever, it'll get back together. And then like Nora's like, like, I'm going to kill you. This book is really fun. It's like so I don't know. I've never read a book that's like, like the combination of devastating and like joy is like equal. Like it's because it's like because like when you mentioned Stormfire, Stormfire is just like, oh, my God, I need right. a nap. I need to stare at a wall. I need to like <laughs> count to 20 or something. But like but Lady Gallant is just it's fun. Yeah, it, it's highly recommended. It's like it's a good and it's got the best grovel because the grovel lasts for like 12 chapters. <laughs> Grovels are great. Um, speaking of grovels, there's, I feel like all these books have grovels. We're going to talk about Day of the Duchess by Sarah McLean. I really, really like this book, like, to an extent that I think is, um, overwhelming. Um, <laughs> and I think it's also interesting, this book also is very, very sweet in the period before, um, the cheating happens, and then it's, uh, very, very not sweet, uh, right after. So Day of the Duchess is the final book in a trilogy. You don't have to read the earlier books to read this one, but it is relevant because the trilogy opens with the heroine of that book coming across her brother-in-law having sex with a woman who is very much not her pregnant sister in some bushes at a cultural appropriation garden party. (laughs) She screams at him and the events of her novel, The Rogue Not Taken, go from there. The Day of the Duchess opens three years later with Sarah, the heroine, petitioning her estranged husband, the Duke of Haven, for divorce on the floor of the House of Lords. The book has a dual timeline. We move forward from the divorce day and then go back in time and watch the way the pair meet and their relationship that was built and crumbled in under a year. The first injury is not Haven having cheated on Sarah, and it isn't the biggest injury dealt to Sarah by Haven. We do see the impact Haven cheating has on Sarah, and we see her taunt him with the untrue potential of her having been unfaithful in her years away from him. But he is determined to get her back, to prevent the divorce, so he comes up with a scheme to get her assistance in finding her replacement before he will grant her a divorce. I think this book is really excellent at taking the harm done seriously and having the characters actively work to keep the relationship going. This book does include my favorite grand gesture, but forgiveness does not hinge on that one act. Watching their relationship be rebuilt is so well coupled with the earlier timeline of watching it shatter. I especially liked watching Haven go from thinking he was the harmed party to actually having to confront his own culpability in his relationship with Sarah. I think this was my first cheating book, and I delayed reading it because I read The Rogue Not Taken and loved that book and saw that Sarah and her husband were the couple in this book. And I was like, well, I don't want to read. Like, I don't like (laughs) cheating. That's like romance novels don't include cheating. And then I read this book and I was like, oh, and then like I sobbed my eyes out. Like it, it, 
parts of it are incredibly devastating. Um, and it does take the the harm. I really like I like the I like the old timeline war. Like that's the part that makes me cry. Um, the the newer timeline is a little bit lighter um, for parts of it. But yes, this was my first cheating book, and it did it did shift my mind about like what I was willing to accept because it's like yeah, like cheating is books don't end with cheating. Like they're <laughs> that's the whole point of the the arc is that they the cheating gets um, they move past it or it's something something precipitating happens um to to get you to the ending whether it works for you or not is up to you but it it, you're not you're not ending on the anguish whenever i talk about cheating on tiktok the positive comment that i get is always like i don't want to read cheating books but i did like day of the duchess (laughs) right i like what we were talking about before with like dual timeline because this one's like a dual timeline book and i think cheating and dual timelines work especially well because you can like see the devastation and I think that just hits harder I like what you said about watching the relationship like coalesce back together but while while you're watching it shatter like yeah yeah that's it, it's it, can, it makes for very devastating reads it does I think I cried like five times this book is surprisingly um heavy uh when you you were I read it when I was only reading like Tessa Dare and Sarah McLean's and then it was like oh my god <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so uh, oh, I was going to ask you, Bailey. So uh, it includes your favorite grand gesture. Um, I'm curious what that was. Uh, he grants her a divorce. I think it's great. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. At they, the very end. It just makes me so happy. I'm like, they're getting divorced. But I'm <laughs> happy. Oh, that's so clever. Because like, I've, I've read The Rogue Not Taken too, but I think kind of like I read it at a point in my life, like kind of as you mentioned, Emma, where I was like, I don't know if I want to read. And now I'm like, I do want to read that. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, it, it's so fun when someone it's like the the plot is like we're gonna take advantage of this law that just just happened. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's fun. Where it's like suddenly they can get divorced, and it's like she's the first woman who's like mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this. Like, <laughs> divorce. Um, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> Emma and I were got to read a very fun book. Not quite a husband, Chelsea. Uh, slugs through Prince of <laughs> Dreams by Lisa Kleypas. <laughs> yeah, this this book. Oh my gosh, this book. I want to just. I want to scream about this book to everyone, and not like so much that I'm like angry about it because I think at first I was angry about it, but then I was just kind of confused, and then I went to like, <laughs> I. I'm kind of obsessed with what Clapus is trying to do here. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> I would just. I. I think I might read it again, actually. Um, so this isn't. <laughs> this is not where y'all saw that going. Like I hated this book to like now I'm obsessed with it. Which happens yeah. Pretty frequently. <laughs> yeah, that does happen to me a lot, doesn't it? You seem um, to like to dissect your books. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a rereader for sure. So yeah, this is an early Lisa Kleypas published in 1995. And no matter what I say, I will say I don't think it's good. Uh, but if you are a Kleypas completionist, you get to see her trying out some elements and storylines that she ends up putting into better books later on. Uh, so this is a romance between Nicholas, who is a Russian prince that has escaped England after pretty traumatic events, and Emma Stokehurst, who's the eldest daughter of a duke. Nicholas starts off the courtship with control. Like, he has an interest in Emma that he doesn't quite put to words, but he threatens her love interest and essentially forces him to abandon courtship, which is something similar to what Harry Rutledge does in Kleypas's Tempt Me at Twilight. So then Nicholas swoops in and proposes a marriage of convenience uh, to the heroine. So she'll get out of under her father's thumb and have control over her own life and her menagerie. So she she has a menagerie of exotic animals, but they're rescues, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) She's like... Lisa Kleypas' Carol Baskins. Like. 
Um, <laughs> but she gets to she gets to keep her in menagerie. She keeps to keep being like the biggest hoyden in the world, and then he will get to be married to her. And she's a woman that excites him because she's so different. That's something that they say a lot. But Nicholas's past gets in the way. He confides to Emma that his brother was executed in Russia and that he was brutally tortured. But the trauma from that event is something that he lets trickle into their current relationship. He isn't able to say that his obsession with Emma is love, so he slowly begins to emotionally abuse her. He ignores her. He mocks her. He attempts to dominate her actions, and their marriage is essentially falling apart. He also cheats on her. But what I find very interesting is this happens off page. Nicholas returns one day smelling of sex, and Emma gets angry with him for infidelity. It's not confirmed that he actually did sleep with someone until much later in the book. I actually really like how small the cheating is in the grand scheme of things, because coupled with all the other ways that Nicholas is a bad husband, the cheating is much more forgettable. What we actually do see, him ignoring her, belittling her, being a bad father to the illegitimate son that gets left on his doorstep, have a lot more of a negative impact. So kind of a note about the weirdness of the book. This is a paranormal historical, and that is kind of a spoiler, so I'm so sorry. But this is a paranormal historical, and that ends up making this an interesting book, but not necessarily a fun one to read. So Nicholas gets his desire to change and be a better husband because he goes back in time and lives as his great-great-great-great-grandfather <laughs> who was executed in Russia. And then when he goes back in time, his wife is Emmeline, who is his relative that also just looks just like Emma. So it's essentially them reliving their relationship under different circumstances that end tragically. It's a very bizarre choice. And one that I would honestly love to see from anyone other than Clapis. Uh, I just don't think the style works for her. <laughs> I, think this should, I think this should be your first Clapis, Bailey. I, I almost <laughs> read this book as my first Clapis. I saw it on the list and I was like, I've been meaning to read Elisa Clapis. And then I, I, I consulted my list of Clapis books from Emma. And I was like, this isn't on Emma's list. <laughs> so it's outside of her like neatness of her universe. And yeah, this is... I was, I feel like a Clapis novel is one that you can like, you can tell from like a mile away it's a Clapis book. This is not, this is not, doesn't have some of the, but I think maybe some of the markers are the same. Where like the, it seems like the dynamic between the couple is similar to Clapis, like Hoyden and man who can't talk about his emotions, even though he's like obsessed with a Hoyden, that happens a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the paranormal element of like living someone else, I wonder, I feel like that kind of has structurally similar elements. It's like the dual timeline, like you mm -hmm. need to like, be removed in some way at both as reader and hero from your cheating to see why the cheating is bad but this does, this book does sound wild um i almost interrupted it eventually <laughs> i almost interrupted earlier when we're like dual timeline books to add mine i'm like this is a dual timeline he also lives this is like, great very great literally great, great <laughs> two timelines the most dual timeline book right yeah yeah yes. <laughs> And it's like, I, this is not relevant to the cheating at all, but I just want to talk about it. So like, <laughs> so like there's, um, there's this part, so he goes back and he lives as his relative. And like one thing, Clapis quickly discards it, but like one thought that he has, he's like, oh no, I'm living as my great, 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 great grandfather. I'm not going to have sex with my wife. So that way I will never be born. And I'm like, <laughs> what is um, So he doesn't sound very happy then. <laughs> no, he's like, he's, it's a, it, there's a lot really around his trauma. And it's kind of like, 
it is kind of like a very like it's a book that takes itself very seriously um but like kind of as i mentioned earlier like when we're talking about cheating because like this does like you do the cheating is mentioned in goodreads which is why i picked this one up because i was like oh how does clopas do cheating and the answer is like she doesn't really do it kind of because it's kind of like a but she does like he's a bad husband he's in a kind of like an emotionally abusive husband and i think that's kind of like an interesting way to to look at cheating as like an act that can have like different levels of harm based on like kind of like where both characters are at because to me in this book there are other things that nicholas does like he's his cruelties his other cruelties kind of like hurt emma in much more uh ways that we see directly than some off-page cheating when he's already like kind of checked out of the marriage yeah I think it's also interesting that it's a marriage of convenience and how that might play in like what what parameters did they set up like when they got married because as we'll discuss later sometimes people are okay with some extramarital activity (laughs) I guess but this one I don't know she's upset about the cheating or no oh yeah she's she's very yeah she's upset yeah and it's like Yeah, and it's kind of a weird thing for it to be a marriage of convenience because, like, there's no reason why Nicholas needs to marry Emma. Like, he Mm -hmm. likes her. That's the whole reason. I'm conveniently in love with you. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of like, (laughs) it's only a marriage of convenience for her because he scared off her the, the man the, that right, she the other, thought she yeah, wanted to yeah. marry. So that's kind of why I see that, like, uh, temp- there are, like, a few things, like, the, the Tempt Me a Twilight, he's kind of like Harry Rutledge, like, the Hoyden of all Hoydens. Like, I think Kleypas later softens the edges of that heroine character because, like, it was insufferable in this book. <laughs> but, like, um, but she actually writes really likable Hoydens generally. So, um, uh, and and then there's kind of, like, uh, Kleypas loves an animal. She loves a pet. But like here, she's like, here's all the pets. You have all the pets. So that was kind of, it's kind of funny to like read it, like uh, having read so much Clapis and, and this isn't the oldest Clapis I've read. I don't think, I think I've read some earlier ones too, but like this one is worse, I think maybe because she like swung big and like didn't quite hit it. But yeah, in the context of cheating, like it, it is a cheating, it, saying this is a cheating book feels super weird because it's like a, a cheating happens. A cheating could happen, but like one cheating, yeah, one one cheating off page. <laughs> um, but like, and and that's part of something that the hero has to answer for. But it's also like, why if if cheating is going to be the the biggest thing for us, like the thing that like is the worst thing that anyone could ever do to a person? I don't think this book would agree with you. I don't think I would agree with you. I think that actually is a good transition to the next book because oh. I feel like it, these fit together really well as far as like reader response to cheating. Mm-hmm. So this book, Seduction of a Highland Lass, the hero cheats with the heroine while engaged to someone else. Um, this is the second book in the McCabe trilogy by Maya Banks. And the context is that Alaric is the se- second son and he's on his way to claim his fiance, uh, Rihanna. And then he's ambushed and he's saved by Keeley. Um, Keeley has been outcast from her clan her position in the clan uh, system is really tenuous. And so Alaric throughout the whole book is unsure if he can marry her, both because he's engaged to Rihanna and because Keeley isn't necessarily like um, to the level that would marry a McCabe brother. They're a sort of storied family that is in need of cash. And that's why they're uh, someone's marrying Rihanna. It's an arranged marriage. And that's really all you need to know about the cheating plot because Rihanna is an off page character. Um, she doesn't appear till the end of the book. 
And also, I think important context is this is the second book in the trilogy, and Rihanna, the fiance, was also kind of engaged to the first brother, who's the first book in the series. So she's passed from one brother to another one, and then sort of predictably, she's the heroine of the third book to the third brother. <laughs> but so the romance that you see between Alaric and Keeley is really sweet, and there's sort of the the question is, can I run out on my fiance who I've not actually met yet, and can I marry someone that sort of I'm gonna get rid of my duty. I need to bring money into the to family and Keely doesn't have any income. There is some sort of like deus machina of like making Keely she, she finds her place back in the clan so the marriage becomes less tenuous or um, not approved. But most reviews that I read of this book would not class this as cheating. And I think it goes with the book that Charles was talking about in our future discussion of Ravishing the Heiress by Sherry Thomas, which is a book that we don't think is cheating but lots of people think is cheating. I think on every level and like the definition of infidelity, Alaric is cheating on Rihanna. Like he is engaged. She has the understanding that they are engaged when she arrives at the castle. She's upset that she's not getting married. She's like, two men have walked out on me now. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? Um, but because she's not a character on page, I think you can read this book not as a cheating book. Like you're, that's not really the question that's coming up. Um, Alaric is much more concerned of like keeping Keely in his life. Like, can I have her be my mistress? Can I marry her? Uh, what are her feelings towards me? He's not really thinking about Rihanna um, because even if he married Rihanna, I think he sort of intends to keep Keely as a mistress. So it, it's, and this is, I think, speaks to the way we were talking about cheating as a trope. This is a book that objectively has infidelity in it, but doesn't is not structured like a cheating book. And I think that's when you read the reviews of people who read this on Goodreads, you're like, this is not a cheating book or this almost is cheating, but it didn't feel like cheating. I think that speaks to that cheating as a trope doesn't really make sense because you have this like wide berth of experience as a reader. This book doesn't feel like cheating, even though there is cheating, and there are other books that don't have cheating in them that feel like cheating books to readers. And this is sort of the, the counter to that. I did like the comment you have on our Google Doc where you are quoting someone where <laughs> the reviewer says, unfortunately, I did like the book in spite of the cheating, but I liked it under protest. <laughs> I love that. The, your experience is not uh, you read this and you're like, I, I, I took me a minute to even remember this book had cheating in it because it's like Rihanna is not in love with uh, Alaric. She's not in love with Ewan from the first book. She, her, mostly her, her being upset about not getting engaged is like political. She's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, do you have another brother? And then like, lo and behold, there's a, there is another brother. (laughs) convenient. I like that. I like this though because it is showing how there's more there are, there can be other ramifications outside of because it it sounds like they're not like emotionally attached but yeah she's kind right. of like unmoored like what is she gonna do now she does, <laughs> she like... arrives at the castle and then like he leaves her at the altar and so, but she's not emotionally upset about it she's just like like come on guys like get it together you owe me a fiance. <laughs> But that's still valid, and it is still right. a betrayal. Like, you were counting on this for your economic stability, right. and now you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? I think this book is a good example of the, like, cheating is okay in historical, because sometimes yes. cheating in historical, like, this wouldn't happen in a contemporary romance, because you wouldn't be engaged to somebody you just, like, kind of vaguely knew-ish. Right, and it's like she's, he's already, like, her second fiancé, her already, it's like her second arranged marriage, mm-hmm. and it's very clear that the arrangement is between the families. Um, yeah. And I think even the person who's arranging it is not a member of the family, it's like the king or someone in charge is like, oh, these two families need to be united. So it's like one of you and one of you need to get married. Uh, it doesn't really matter which one. 
So that's I'm really glad you said that, Bailey, because that's kind of like what I was um, because the cheating is okay and historical. I feel like those folks don't quite maybe realize when they see it in contemporary. No, I know I'm thinking of a movie, but I'm thinking of You've Got Mail. Like, you know, when um, she leaves Greg Kinnear and he's like, he's like, okay with it. He's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's so (laughs) that we can be like. Oh, yeah, she didn't do anything wrong. Like, he's fine with it. But it's like she was cheating on him throughout the whole movie. And there's, like, another part where he's, like, flirting with an anchor. Like, it's, it's like, trying to show that they clearly are not or they're, like, drifting apart. But Mm -hmm. to make it more palatable, I guess, to the audience. But, yeah, it's definitely cheating. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um and Meg Ryan loves to cheat on, like, the sweeties. With- <laughs> it also happens in Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to The Duke I Tempted by Scarlett Peckham. So The Duke I Tempted by Scarlett Peckham is a romance between Poppy, who has familial ties to the aristocracy but is a professional gardener, and the Duke of Westmead, or Archer. So Poppy and Archer first meet when she's enlisted to create a beautiful plant scene for a ball that Archer's sister is planning. They have a pretty intense chemistry, but Archer rebuffs Poppy in a painful and humiliating way. So Poppy is the first relationship that Archer has had since the tragic death of his wife and child. And since then, Archer has isolated himself in his grieving process. He's also become a member of a whipping house in London called Charlotte Street, He wears a key around his neck that gains him entry and has scars along his back from the whipping house. After they've amicably split, a gossip paper reports that Poppy and Archer were seen together, so Archer proposes a marriage of convenience. Things start off really well, but because Archer is harboring the secret about the whipping house and gets cold when Poppy seems like she's getting close to finding out the truth, they get caught in this cycle of miscommunication. They both really want each other in their lives, but they're unsure of how to talk to each other. And Archer is clearly withholding something. And Poppy concludes that his withdrawals are because of how he feels about her as a person. So in turn, she walls herself off from Archer. One day, Poppy follows Archer to Charlotte Street and catches him at the whipping house. This discovery is actually what ends up saving their marriage because Archer finally comes clean and Poppy is also interested in exploring different types of sexual scenarios with Archer. This is where their sexual compatibility comes from. Poppy is more dominant, and that's what Archer wants and needs, but was unable to express out of shame. Uh, So only really angry Goodreads reviews call what Archer does at the Whipping House cheating, but I also agree with them, even though I'm not angry about it. It's cheating because there isn't an agreement in place between the two of them at this point. I like that Poppy is pretty ambivalent about the cheating, but is more upset by what is more directly affecting her. Archer withdrawing himself from their relationship. I want to note that Poppy also has some pretty intense moments of stonewalling, so Archer is not the only party that's responsible for what their marriage has become, but that initial reticence does come from him. He wanted a marriage of convenience where he could essentially ignore his wife and continue on at Charlotte Street as usual, but when he married Poppy, he didn't do a full pivot away from that, even though he had stronger feelings for Poppy than how he was imagining feeling about his wife. Which, wow, this is, reminds me a lot of, a lot of marriage of conveniences are kind of like this. Like, oh no, I love my wife, but I refuse to recategorize her. Mm. <laughs> and so yes. problems come up because of me, like, thinking that I can treat, uh, be aloof to the person that I want a relationship with. Oh no, I love my wife is literally my favorite thing. 
It's so good, isn't it? It's so like, good. Bailey, why do you think, oh no, I love my wife, like happens so much with cheating books? Because I noticed this happened like in a few different ones. I think, oh no, I love my wife happens in just like books with like emotionally repressed men. Uh, and then once they've confronted their feelings, they have to like actually come up with a plan to tell her that they have changed the way that they feel, which often means that they also have to confront the harm that they've done to her when they were pretending that like, oh, no, they did not love their wife. But I was thinking, so we were thinking about when Harry met Sally, or we were thinking about Meg Ryan, and so we haven't mentioned <laughs> Harry Sally yet, but I was thinking about the quote from the football game when Jess is like, marriage, marriages don't break up on account of infidelity, it's just a symptom that something else is wrong, which is like, it's like Jess is like this character who's always having aphorisms, mm-hmm. and Harry's like, this doesn't help me at all, my wife is well, he's like, he's like, the symptom is fu- fucking my wife. <laughs> is fucking my wife. But I feel like that does capture some of the things, it's like, oftentimes the cheating in romance you don't just apologize for the cheating. You apologize for all the stuff that came before mm-hmm. the cheating. Like you have to, and it's like, this is now the thing where it's like, it's so bad that the wife or the heroine or whoever's been cheated on is like, this is unacceptable. I'm now going to be angry at you no matter what the power dynamic is between us. And you're like, oh no, not only did I cheat on them, I have to, I, I've also like stonewalled them or like embarrassed them or not expressed my feelings to them. And it's like, all that has to come together but the, because cheating is so bad. Um, it's like the worst thing you can do. It, it it sort of wraps up all the all the other emotions. It's like the the trigger. I feel like this is almost like cheating as clear like clarifying <laughs> emotion here, where it's like this book. He goes to the whipping house to like decompress, and like her discovering that this is like what he's doing. It's just like allows them to actually have a proper communication. Like, oh, this is what's going on in our marriage. So I liked this book for that that reason. And I and I do and I love I love having this book as an example because the whipping house is cheating and you know we talk about like how Archer is withholding like some information from Poppy but like when I was rereading it for like the second time like I Poppy does really really kind of emotionally abusive things too uh, which mm-hmm. she kind of has to like so kind of like framing this book is like oh this is a book where he cheats on her is kind of like very simplifying the problem yeah uh, because the the bulk of the stonewalling actually comes from poppy like poppy is like very like uh i love how scarlet peckham writes heroines and like she uh because people talk about unlikable heroines a lot and i i don't want to ever call a heroine unlikable basically because i i don't feel that way about them but i think like if people were to point out a heroine that they don't like, I think Poppy could very easily uh, be this person because of the way that Poppy reacts. Um, Cause she's very control, like controlling her environment is super important to her, like at every aspect of everything. And like Archer is kind of like a wrench in her plans when she doesn't know what's going on in his head. Uh, so you can kind of see him like reaching out to her, which is different what you have in most cheating books. Like this is different than when Prince of Dreams. This is different than If You Deceive. Like Archer is making these like advancements. He's like, maybe we can get a little closer in this regard. Like maybe we can kind of get to know each other. And then Poppy's like, no, this is a marriage of convenience. I'm going to protect myself. You're withholding something from me. And if this isn't perfect, it's not going to work. And so she's kind of responsible for a good chunk of like what happened. So it's kind of like when people like it kind of makes it kind of crazy to talk about all cheating books as being the same or like the same harm or whatever, because like 
I don't really like even Poppy doesn't see the whipping house as harmful for what Archer is doing. Like Poppy doesn't have a thought where she's like, how dare you betray me by going here? It's like the, her initial reaction is like, oh, okay. Now I kind of understand a little, our relationship a little bit better. Like this, she even like notes like, this is not entirely innocent. Like he's aroused, but like also that kind of makes sense in our sexual relationship before this, like this is kind of like how, um, so I, I love kind of being able to include this one on there because there's kind of like a lot of, um, and also too, like, I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on this about like, uh, cause I think that people have a lot of, uh, expectations about the way that heroines should behave when they are cheated on. Like this comes up mm-hmm. in a lot of reviews. I wonder if y'all have any thoughts on like, uh, why we have like, when, when people are complicated, uh, we we don't expect this from abuse. Like, why do we expect it from, like, another type of traumatic event? Well, I feel like the script for cheating is that you just assume that the other person will leave. And especially because we're reading romance, it's normally the hero that's cheating. So we're expecting the heroine to just take the ultimate step and leave when that's, as Bailey mentioned before, is not the case. Like, people stay together all the time and you shouldn't blame someone i guess if they see value in their relationship still even if someone has made this significant misstep i also think we kind of think it's a moral failing to stay with Mm. like not only to cheat on someone but to stay with someone who's cheated on you so when we're reading a book where the heroine chooses to stay like you know we already hate women and then she did something extra hateable so let's hate her more yeah, like if the cheating book like fails for you, it's like, are you blaming the per- are you even blaming the character who cheated? Are you blaming the person who like made it a happily ever after? Because one of those things is culpable and one of them is not. Um, but yeah, it, it's also like the, with the confines of historical romance, uh, except for Bailey, I think all of our characters like divorce is not on the table for them. Like, there's not a, yeah. it's it, not which, an option. I like that in historical because I I like that the happily ever after has this constraint on it. Um, I do read some books that um, extend past like divorce laws. Um, but I like that it, it's that you have to like work on it. Like it makes sense to me as like a structural thing that like you have to, they know that they're going to be married. So like, why not try to make it the happiest marriage possible? And so I, I, I'm, I'm also, even though maybe I'm just saying cheating is okay in historicals, but which I don't necessarily agree with, but I feel like I've walked myself into that argument. <laughs> Um, We're just saying there's different parameters where it's like, you don't want it to just be livable. If we can make this better, then why not shoot for that? I think is. Yeah. And I guess it's like we say in historical, like historicals, people can't get divorced, but also divorce is a trauma of itself. Like people don't want to get divorced um, necessarily. And it's like, yeah, people, like Bailey said, people have the right to decide like how their relationship goes out. I imagine if, if you've been cheated on, I imagine there are people who've been cheated on who find these relationships where it's like, oh, someone does, like, restore the person they've been cheated on. They do have a redemption, like, this model of, like, forgiveness. Like, that, that's, that could be affirming in a way that, um, that rather than, like, oh, someone's been cheated on and they, they cast out and, and never get that happily ever after. Like, those are also um, a, a realm of possibility. People react in lots of different ways to real life and to books. <laughs> Okay, we're going to switch to a book where a heroine has an affair with her daughter's suitor. I'm very excited to talk about this one. This is The Countess by Sophie Jordan, and Bailey's going to take it away for us. 
I found this book through Meg Loves Words on TikTok, and I think that it's kind of a really interesting cheating book, even if it's not a book that Meg likes super highly recommended. The Countess is a cheating book that might be more palatable to someone who does not typically want to read a cheating book. This book follows True, the titular Countess, who is married to an absolutely atrocious man. He is cartoonishly evil. Literally on page 7, he calls her a priggish cow, then says that she is his one great regret in life and laments that the only way he will ever escape her is through death. Then he calls her stupid. The story really starts when True's husband is told by a third party that his daughter is now old enough to marry, which makes her useful to him as he needs her to marry a man who would finance his lifestyle. Jordan spends a lot of page time showing the reader over and over how horrid this man is. I do think that this is detrimental to the romance overall, because so many pages are spent on why True simply cannot abide being with her husband that I think might have been better spent increasing the interaction True has with the love interest Jasper. I do suspect this is to head off criticism from readers about True conducting an affair. Jasper is the man True's husband has picked to marry their daughter. The pair meet at a seance and neither know who the other is. She exits the spectacle and he follows her out because he thinks she's hot and he's worried about her sudden exit. Jasper propositions True minutes into speaking to her for the first time. And she's tempted but ultimately declines due to her belief that cheating on her husband would make her equally as bad as he is. True and Jasper meet again soon after at a ball where he is meant to be wooing her daughter. The pair slowly enter into a romantic and sexual relationship. They are able to be together so often without raising suspicion because Jasper has arranged an actually fake fake dating scheme with True's daughter who doesn't want to marry him, but also has no idea that he is into her mom. I was briefly convinced that this book was going to include True and Jasper plotting and carrying out the murder of her husband, but I had no such luck. By the end of the novel, True's husband is, like, solved by a little bit of deus ex machina. Does he fall off a horse? He gets run over by a carriage. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a horse. Yeah, the horse was involved. The horses yeah. are so dangerous. <laughs> they are. Especially if you're a bad husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You should not be into writing. I Like, I'm sad to hear that this book is kind of disappointing and maybe, like, heads off. Like, I wish Jordan maybe had, like, tr like people can deal with someone cheating. Uh, it sounds like she spends a lot of time making sure that you don't hate the heroine. It's I, I literally like about I would 70 like pages. I would read a book where the heroine either cheats to be with someone that she wants to be with or just cheats on her partner because it it doesn't it, it's one of these i mean sometimes you feel like these like you're like oh romance has come so far and you're like this is one of those things it's like we still have very like distinct gender roles that if this book came out this year right or pretty yeah, recently a couple like, months if, ago um if we have a heroine cheating on them we have to spend most of our time making sure that the readers don't hate the heroine it's like oh like we are still definitely making some some gender assumptions, uh, both probably from the readers and the author's uh, point of view. And I also do think that Jordan does some really interesting things with this book. I just think they're kind of overshadowed by how much time is spent just like making sure you know that this man is the worst man. So that's kind of really interesting because like I read um, The Worst Woman in London by Julia Bennett recently. And that's kind of another where the heroine actually like gets a divorce in that book. Um, and the 
But like, I think Bennett had like a very different interest in the husband who was also like very, very bad and very, very cruel to the heroine in a lot of ways. But like something that Bennett does that like weirdly frustrated me was that she gave the husband, like she didn't kill off the bad husband. Like she gave him like his own happily ever after, like in the divorce and I don't think it, fr- it didn't frustrate me because I didn't think that he should or could get that. I think it was more the way that it was written. But like, I was really, I really loved that she did that. Or like, I loved that she tried it. I loved that she was something that she like put in there where it was kind of like, okay, we can have the scenario where someone is being the worst husband ever and is like cheating on a person, but like, he's still like, he can have all of these faults, but he's still like a human being. Like these are still people that we have to kind of like grapple with and meet on their terms sometimes, even when we don't want to. And something I didn't mention about the Countess that I think I should have was he, um, True's husband does have a mistress and she is fantastic. And like you, the reader, are supposed to think that she's fantastic. I laughed every single time she spoke. Um, (laughs) She is really great. The heroine does not have any ill will towards her. Like this book does like treat the mistress excellently. And then you are like specifically made aware that after the husband is no longer an issue, that like the mistress is well taken care of afterwards. Does, is the mistress going to get her own book? I don't think so, but she's like having a lovely little life as a, I think she's a singer, and I think she's being financed by the by the countess. I love that for her. Yeah. I read, um, was it uh, Lady Daring Gets a Lover by um, Julianne Long? So that she's getting cheated by, uh, on by, like her husband has already died at the beginning of the book. And then she meets her husband's uh, mistress and then they like start a business scheme together. So there's kind of like, and the mistress is the love interest of the second book. Like I have like kind of mixed feelings about those. I think like Julianne Long is very fun, but sometimes she's like having so much fun that I'm just like, I think that you need to like get back to like the story instead of the jokes sometimes. And I think that the, at, towards kind of the end of that series, that's kind of like where that heads off to. But the the first, that book and the second one, I really enjoy. I liked how that was kind of, keep, yeah, I'm sorry. I keep talking about other books, but like you keep saying things that remind me of like, oh yeah, I heard that. I think um, we all want to hear about other books. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess kind of back to um, The Countess. So does her daughter her daughter doesn't know anything about um does she feel any type of betrayal by this yeah, being the, kept from her the daughter doesn't know anything about it and she she does obviously find out um she feels i think confusion is her is her top emotion about it cuz she's like my mother wants to be with someone um <laughs> which i think is kind of funny um I think she was upset about it, but she's mostly just, like, baffled. And then it's, like, right at the end, so she kind of needs to, like, get with being happy pretty quick. It's like, you got to wrap this up. We've got 30 more pages. you got to get your feelings in check. (laughs) And then right after she finds out her – this is a spoiler – but right after she finds out her mother is, like, kidnapped by her father and, like, he's going to keep her in an attic or something. So she has to, like, kind of go help – get her mom out of the attic so she kind of gets over it pretty quick yeah yeah dad sucks <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the worst. <laughs> okay we're gonna transition to another clapus this is dreaming of you by elisa clapus so 
Novelist Sarah Fielding saves Derek Craven's life one dark night as he's attacked by his rival's hired men. Derek shows little gratitude, but they make their way to his gaming hell so he can get medical assistance. There, Sarah requests access to the staff to interview for her upcoming novel. Derek says no, but his right-hand man, Worthy, says yes. Sarah attends the club, and Derek watches from afar. There's something between them, and Sarah asks Derek for a kiss. He balks because he doesn't want only a kiss, and she's good and pure, so he says no. Although he explains he wants more than that, Sarah feels humiliated that he won't kiss her. A little aside here, Sarah has an almost fiancé, Perry, who's back home in their little English village. They've been together for about four years, and Sarah attributes Perry's unwillingness to propose to her because of his overwhelming mother. Which is true, Perry's mom is a lot, and a boy mom. Sarah has tried to initiate sex with Perry in the past, but Perry insists that they wait until they get married. Okay, back from the aside. Sarah wants to attend a masquerade ball at the gaming hell, but Derek says no, although his one lady friend says yes and helps Sarah with an outfit and hair stuff. At the ball, Derek, not knowing it's Sarah, takes her to a back room and they make out with the intention of more. Eventually, he recognizes her and he tells her to go back home to Little English Village. Sarah does. Perry greets her with a kiss and Sarah is kind of like, your mom is overbearing, but we should get married. They get engaged, but they break it off because this mom doesn't change. And Perry backs her up. One of the sex workers Sarah interviewed, Tabitha, visits Sarah as she's on the way home to her family. She tells her Derek had sex with her, and he called her Sarah the whole time. So this is the part everyone thinks is cheating, but the actual cheating is Sarah kissing Derek while in a relationship with Perry. Perry's an interesting character. I, te- I texted the group chat like a page where he literally like runs home to his mother after like Derek threatens him. And I was like, this is so <laughs> over the top. And I feel like it's kind of similar to the Countess where it's like Perry is made to be like a mama's boy. Like so he like has no spine, like so opposite to like manly man Derek that we don't really sympathize with Perry at all. And we can kind of like excuse the fact that Sarah is actually like cheating on this on like her fiance or almost fiance uh they're not quite engaged when the cheating happens but he like i i like i've mentioned like he greets her with a kiss like he's has this expectation like we're in a relationship and i think at one point like he suspects that sarah had succumbed to advances as he calls it because she's so forward now and he is angry that at the thought that she would be with someone else I mean, also, yeah, like, I, I guess, like, I'm trying to see it from, like, Perry's point of view because, yeah, Perry mm-hmm. is, like, written as, like, he's come, he's got to be kind of, like, comic relief in some ways because he's like, mother, the woman made sexual advantages <laughs> on me. Like, it's, like, very, like, it's funny the way that he's written. But, like, right. um, but, like, kind of seeing it through his point of view, if I'm trying to be, like, nice about it, like, uh, you're kind of engaged to Sarah. She goes away to London. She learns her London things. She comes home and all of a sudden she's like trying to kiss and grope and do all this other stuff. He's like, who is this woman? Where is this coming from? It's very confusing. Like, what did you learn in London? Who have you been talking to? <laughs> like, so I like, it's just, I, I, I think that, yeah, I don't think, um, 
Perry is just like kind of like a funny little feature of the book that I I don't I think that he's kind of like very easy to write off because like his mom is so cruel to Sarah and so like Perry is actually responsible for his mom's cruelty because as a potential partner he should be the one to kind of like create that divide and like put his foot down and be like hey you need to be nice to her I really like her um yeah like that's, back her out yeah that's more of perry's problem and so i think Claypus could have like still written the character like that way without making him full-on boy mom like he could, <laughs> yeah um, i love that I, yeah. I, I took that from beth <laughs> oh yeah no i loved it when beth said it <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, was, i just think when i read this book i also had an issue with the scene where sarah or when derek sleeps with tabitha i was i I definitely the the rake who enjoys Lisa Claypas the most, but I'm I'm always like, is this your king about Derek Craven? Um, he's not my favorite Lisa Claypas hero, but mostly because it's like this is really cruel to Tabitha. Like it's it's weird like yeah. to to sleep with someone and call them by someone else's name, and it's like he obviously doesn't see her as a person. His relationship with the sex workers at the club is really weird, both as like he's kind of their employer, but also he takes advantage of them. Like, he, he um, indulges in their services, and that's what he's doing with Tabitha. Like, I didn't think of it as cheating on Sarah as much as, like, oh, that's just, like, a strange, cruel thing to do to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I don't I didn't understand Sarah hearing it and being like, oh, I should go back to Derek, because obviously he's still in love with me. I, it's like, oh, it's like, that's weird. Don't do that. And so it's, it's weird seeing people's reaction where it's like, oh, that's Derek cheating on Sarah, and we need to forgive Derek for that, opposed to being, like, that Derek has a weird relationship with his employees, we need to, like, problematize that. <laughs> and the way that Kleypas writes Tabitha is, like, very uncomfortable for me because, like, uh, be- because of the direct comparison to Sarah. Like, she looks just like Sarah, but it's, like, if you close one eye and squint another, it's, like, she's very, like, weathered um, from her uh, from her occupation. Like, and then also, like, when she, like, speaks, she has, like, a very different cadence. She has a very different accent. She's not, like, doesn't have, like, the cultured tones or whatever she said to mm-hmm. describe Sarah's voice. So I think kind of like it is kind of like an additional cruelty to kind of like set these two women up like this, like kind of like a mirror of like Derek can't have you, Sarah, the woman that he's because like we called Derek like the super ego rake. Like he doesn't think he deserves anything <laughs> nice or good uh, because yeah. of his. Uh, and so the just kind of like when you think about that, you think about that. That's kind of the way that he's written. Like he doesn't deserve nice things. So he won't he won't touch Sarah. He won't be with Sarah. But like the Tabitha. Like, Tabitha's fine. Yeah. She's, she's not a person. Yeah. yeah. So that's she's already of, ruined. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like another part where I'm kind of like, okay, I don't. But yeah, but I guess to for the cheating in specific, like that's so funny to me. I'm like, I, it's some people, it's just like if, if the hero sleeps with anyone in the pages of the book, that's not the heroine, then that's cheating. Cause like, there's no way you could say this is cheating. They're not in it. Derek and Sarah are not in a relationship. They have no agreement. He literally says, go back to your fiance. Like, yeah. And she's gay. She gets more engaged. (laughs) Yeah, she gets super engaged. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think that's kind of, uh, but, but it's kind of like, looking at kind of like, maybe just because, you know, it's like, you you can't cheat on a boy mom, but you can cheat on uh, Sarah, who is the cheater. Like, I kind of just, kind of interesting the way that people interpret these things yeah okay let's move on to the next one 
So this is the book that people say is the cheating book that isn't that we've referenced throughout the episode, um, partially because we all love this book, um, or The Rakes. I don't think Bailey's read this one. I have um, not. She should. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Ravishing the Heiress by Sherry Thomas. In Ravishing the Heiress, Millie and Fitz are in a typical marriage of convenience. He unexpectedly inherited a title that came with a house in disrepair and an estate with debts. She is a non-aristocratic only child of a tycoon of a new technology business that is flourishing in the second half of the 20th century. The business is tinned fish. <laughs> Millie and Fitz have become best friends over the course of their marriage, weathering a period of Fitz's life where he struggled with alcoholism and dealing with the death of both of Millie's parents. At the time of the marriage, Fitz was in love with his childhood sweetheart, Isabel, but put duty to his new title over his romance. Millie was aware of Fitz's affection for Isabel, but she fell in love with him from the moment they were introduced. She allows Fitz to believe that she also has a sweetheart she's giving up for this advantageous marriage. Along with the understanding of convenience, Millie proposes a covenant of freedom, where Fitz can conduct his affairs as if he were not married, including sexual partners, but also have freedom to hang out with his friends, finish university as if he were not a married earl. She holds herself to the standard of an unmarried girl, so she does not have sexual affairs, but does run her own house and business with aid from Fitz rather than with his control. She proposes the agreement so that when they do have to have sex to have an heir, she's not having sex with the object of her unrequited love and experience that she dreads. She assumes during the covenant of freedom she will get over Fitz in this period. Fitz jumps at the agreement, countering an eight-year delay to Millie's proposed six, only confirming in her mind his lack of interest in her. Right when the agreement is up, Fitz's childhood sweetheart returns to England as a widow. This is a precipitating event of the book. Fitz intends to take Isabel as a mistress, but feels duty-bound by the conditions of their marriage, and earnestly wants to make his wife happy with a child of her own, so he wants to first have a child with Millie before he conducts an affair with Isabel. He is similarly under the impression that Millie suggested the pact because she had no interest in him romantically or sexually, even though she's been in love with him the whole time. The book is a dual timeline, so you see what makes Fitz and Millie close friends in their marriage in the A timeline as they're approaching the mandated con consummation in the B timeline. So this book, there's, there's not cheating. So Fitz is conducting affairs throughout the book. That's part of his covenant of freedom. Millie is hyper aware of the affairs. She knows um, what's going on. And there's the scene where he realizes how aware she is of the affairs. They're dancing together. And she describes to him how he gets his lovers. Like how does Fitz do seduction? And she's sort of aware of it because he's never done it with her. She describes him as a spider waiting for them to approach him. Um, and then she says, a few days later, the gossip gets around to me, but I already know. And this is sort of her reveal that she, she is watching Fitz in a way that he's sort of unaware. Fitz feels like the description is slightly off, um, and he characterizes his seduction techniques based on a shyness rather than a prowess. I don't really know what to do with this scene, but I think it's important to sort of note the awareness that Millie has of the fairs. He's not even, he's not keeping them from her. And she is even, she's closely watching Fitz conducting his affairs. People sometimes call Fitz an emotional cheater or a cheater. I really don't think he is. And I think the rakes are in agreement. Millie is not only not telling him how she feels, but she's lying about her feelings. She's letting him think that she has a sweetheart that she's in love with. She is also the one who sets the covenant of freedom. The moment she confesses her feelings for him, he changes how he relates to that information. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've kind of like really like I don't know, I guess maybe defensive isn't the right word, but when I um when people characterize this as a cheating book, I'm like, I don't understand because 
if you have an agreement, like a verbalized agreement from the beginning of the relationship, I understand that like Millie is coming from it, like from a place of sadness where she thinks that Fitz can never love her and that he had done a lot of things to lead her to believe that because of the way that he acted um, at the beginning of their marriage. So it's like a protective, like a self-protective measure. Like Millie thinks that if she like speaks this agreement out, then she's okay with it. But like Fitz doesn't know that. Fitz thinks that this is something that she came up with because she's just like very practical. She's a lot more mature than him. And he does admire her and thinks that she kind of has it more together than she really does because Millie is like very young and she's just like heartbroken. Uh, But all of that said, like you have two characters like Millie's like, okay, we're married. You can do what you want. I won't say anything. Uh, We don't consummate the marriage until year X. And then Fitz goes, okay. So then if Fitz sleeps with other women, that is within the agreement. So no matter how it makes Millie feel or the reader feel, it's not cheating. I think it's also important that the agreement is not just like the covenant of freedom. Like you can sleep with other people. It's like, you're not sleeping with me. And I think a Mm -hmm. big, so we get a lot of angst from Millie's side about the, um, the silence and the lies to Fitz and his conducting affairs. The angst on Fitz's side is really him sort of processing his substance abuse, his alcoholism. And that sort of connects to how he thinks Millie is viewing him. There are moments where he thinks, like, I was so intemperate at the beginning of our marriage. Like, I scared her so badly. That's one of the, like, she saw that in me and is scared of me. She was so young when we got married. He's commenting constantly. He's like, we've been married for so long, but she's only 25. Like, we're both so young still. He's His sort of anxiety is like, I... I was not a good husband for this period and I've been trying to be a better husband. No wonder she's so scared of me. No wonder she doesn't want me to touch her. No wonder she never has like tried to amend our agreement. She still, she wants those eight years and I have to spend those eight years trying to like let her do her thing because she doesn't want to have anything to do with me because I was so terrible during our honeymoon. Do you think that people think, I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but do you think that people think this is a cheating book because if what he's doing isn't cheating, they don't think she has, like, a right to be upset about it? Yes. Um, yeah, I think I, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it's because it feels like cheating because, like, it hurts so much. It's you mm-hmm. have the – and this is built like a cheating book. It's, like, the dual timeline, the withholding information. Like, I've kind of noticed a lot, like, there's so much miscommunication in cheating books, which I know that we've argued that there is in rom- all romance novels. But, like, in cheating books especially because it's, it's easier to kind of, like, pinpoint because of, like – that's kind of like where a lot of the disconnect is and where like these actions go. But yeah, I think like you, your reaction to Ravishing the Heiress is, would be kind of the same, even if she didn't agree to it, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's kind of like what, it's kind of like a lot of times, like what is, what happens is less important than like how it makes you feel. Um, And I think that's kind of, uh, that's kind of why I think it, it, you would put Ravishing the Heiress as a cheating book because it, it really does feel like a cheating book. But it's just like on a like if you're gonna like actually write out the definition of cheating, like because I guess the only reason why I uh, get kind of like a little bit worked up about that is maybe on Fitz's behalf because I very strongly identify with Fitz and I think like people are very cruel to Fitz. Like people don't really like understand where he's coming from and like are unwilling to acknowledge that Millie is, as you said, Emma, lying to him 
uh, about like uh, where she's coming from, how she feels. So like he has like all of these things on his plate. He was also very young when he got married. So I think there's kind of like maybe the whole reason why I'm just like, I'm so protective of this book not being a cheating book. Like no matter that the big feeling is that I just like, I want us to look at fits with kinder eyes. And I think like in cheating books in general, people really struggle to do that. Right. And I think it's important. This book doesn't have a huge grovel in it. Like, and that, when I first read it, I was disappointed in the, the lack of grovel. I was like, Fitz needs to fix things with Millie. Like, it's, it, it's the, from the, the gap between when she confesses her feelings to him, the only big act that he takes is cutting things off with Isabel. He says it very explicitly, like, Isabel, like, we are not going to be together. I'm going to be with my wife. And then there's a, a misinterpretation of his actions on Millie's part. So he has to apologize for that. But when I first read it, I was like, I want, I, that's what I felt like was missing. But the more times I've read it, I've probably read it like four times now. It really works because like all Millie, she doesn't want him to apologize necessarily. Like, because he didn't really do anything like immoral. She just wants him to be her husband. <laughs> like, it's like, and that that's the solution for Millie. Um, and I think it speaks to like in a relationship, you kind of get to set the terms of forgiveness. Millie doesn't need the grovel. So we don't get a grovel. And as much as you want, and what I think works is, especially if you read the book that comes after it, you get to see Millie and Fitz be a couple together. And you're like, this is what, this is her version of a grovel. Her version of him apologizing is him just being a good husband and being around and loving her. She doesn't need the the big apology that so many of our books sort of uh, rest on. Yeah. I want to go read it. (laughs) Do you have the taste for Sherry Thomas historicals now? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Join us in being devastated constantly. <laughs> I love Didn't having my all feelings hurt. No, not quite a husband was a big a start, a, a wild starting point, but they are pretty devastating. Um, that one is acutely so. But yeah, I was um. like, nothing can hurt me anymore. <laughs> I've read enough. I mean, ravishing the heiress comes close. In private arrangements. <laughs> Oh, yeah, private arrangements. I will say this about Millie, where I think my strongest memory is. I don't know if the family is like waiting to pick someone up at the train station or something, but they're all like waiting for like another family member to join them. And Isabel decides to like come <gasps> hang out and Millie isn't there yet. She comes down the stairs. I'm like, that that scene is so, like just I'm on the floor. Like it's so <laughs> you feel so much also- for Millie. Fitz's reaction, he's like, Isabel, like, you're embarrassing my wife. Like, this, <laughs> yeah. like even if we're not in love with each other, like, even like, if you can't do this, like, yeah. you're embarrassing Millie. And it's like that, it's like, the, that's the beginning of him being like, Isabel doesn't get what it's like to be married to someone you care about. Uh, mm-hmm. Because her marriage was really loveless. And she was like, I was yeah. always holding out for Fitz. And mm-hmm. it's, he, Fitz doesn't realize that he's fallen in love with Millie, but he's, he's so loyal to her. He's like, you can't, you can't embarrass Millie. Like, even if Millie doesn't love me. She's my wife. And he, he really respects, like, the institution of marriage, even though he's sleeping with other people. It's this weird tension. Yeah. Um, because he, he's like, you, she's my wife. She, and he's like, no one will, no one will replace you. You're, you're my countess. You're, you're first at the table. And that's sort of, like, what Millie needs to hear more than I want to have yeah. sex with you exclusively. Right. Yes, I agree. Oh, my God. The secondhand embarrassment I got from that scene. And also what was kind of like really what I love about that scene, too, is like, yeah, there's Fitz, there's Isabel, but also like um, all of Fitz's family. They're just like Millie's wife. Like Millie is the one like they they all really like like she's living as his wife in like every single imaginable way, except for as like the consummation of their marriage, like their business partners, their best friends, their like um, 
they like she like knows his family she hangs out with them she attends functions so um if like you are kind of this person who just kind of like thinks that like okay um I, I, I'm, I'm in love with Isabel. So Isabel is going to be the person that I go with. Like Isabel has to like work up to that level that Millie was at. And then also kind of like the relationship isn't just like sleeping together. So that's kind of where like Fitz like is kind of like, oh, it's so easy for me to just like talk to my wife and sleep with my wife because like we, I already love her and we're already living this way like this. Um, but like for me and Isabel at this point are strangers. So because she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't realize that this is something that I definitely don't want. Yeah. And I am sympathetic to Isabel. I feel like she just doesn't know how to not be a wife. So I think it is kind of natural for her to be like, oh, well, we're going to be doing this. I'm going to like show up for you. So and I think she gets her own novella. So I, it's like I'm sympathetic to Isabel, even though I'm like, please exit this situation. <laughs> her novella is fun. She she like opens the door at her house, and it's someone who looks exactly like Fitz. And she's like, Oh my goodness! <laughs> she thinks it's him coming back, so she like throws herself at this man, and he's like, I don't know you. <laughs> oh my god! So it, it's fun because it's like it. I feel like novellas frequently struggle with like the pacing, and it's like it gets going really quickly because she's throwing herself at the stranger, thinking Fitz has returned to her. <laughs> Um, so that, that it's fun. That sounds very fun. We've um, we've talked a lot. We're hitting a long recording time. We won't cheat this episode. Yeah, we're, <laughs> oh, I'm going to cheat this episode. We're gonna wrap up. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/ReformedRakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at Reformed Rakes. Thank you again, and we will see you next time.